0: Well, how are we doing? Okay. Glad you three are doing great. The rest, we'll work on it. Hopefully, we'll get you there by the end. Uh, It's good to see you. My name is Timothy Atik, and I am one of the teaching pastors here. And if this is your first time that we're in the same room together, I'm just so glad that we get to spend some time together studying the Word of God. I'll start by sharing this. When my wife, when Kat and I, when we got engaged, it, it became time to register for gifts. And when that time came, I found my place in my role in that process very quickly. I learned early on that my responsibility is to nod and smile and say, I agree. So uh, the only thing I brought to the registration conversation was I wanted one thing. There was one thing that I really wanted and uh, it was a bread machine. And I had heard a friend talk about registering for a bread machine, and I was like, I want that. you know. So I decided that I too wanted a bread machine, and I got the bread machine. I just loved the idea of having people over and being like, hey, uh, can I get you a slice of cinnamon swirl? I've got a loaf rising right now. Like To be able to say that sounds epic. Now, we've been married almost 16 years, and I can count on two hands the number of times I've used that bread machine, but let's be clear, I could make a loaf of cinnamon swirl if I wanted to. That's just the right that I have and the ability I have because of that bread machine. Now, here's what I realized when using the bread machine. There were moments that a loaf would be done and I'd bring it out and the aroma would fill the house and it was amazing to the taste. And then there were other times where the the bread machine would kind of run its cycle and I'd go and open it up and it was just this janky ball of mess and I was like I do not know what happened in the last couple hours that this thing has been working but it is very clear to me that I either forgot an ingredient or didn't use the right amount of an ingredient and I tell you that because this morning we're looking at a passage in the Bible that is all about having the healthiest church possible And here's the reality, when it comes to Watermark being a healthy church, there is one ingredient that must be present. But if you don't have this one ingredient, if we don't have this one ingredient, or we don't have the right amount of this ingredient, then this church will just be one big mess. And that ingredient is the ingredient of love. I tell you that because this morning we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the... The famous love passage, 1 Corinthians 13, just might be the most famous passage in the Bible. I mean, it was read at Jim and Pam's wedding on the office. That's how significant this passage is. It is read at most weddings. Like, show of hands, who had 1 Corinthians 13 read at their wedding? Not many of you. That, y'all must have gotten married before Christ. But anyway, <laughs> uh, 1 Corinthians 13, it's the famous Wedding passage. The the interesting thing, though, is that Paul, when he was writing 1 Corinthians 13, he wasn't actually writing it to address love in the context of marriage. He actually wrote it to address love in the context of the church because he's writing to his friends in Corinth, and they were a highly dysfunctional church. And so in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians 13... Paul is writing to them about spiritual gifts that God has given to each individual in the church, and God has given us these gifts so that we can edify the church, we can build it up. But in Corinth, the the Christians were dividing spiritual gifts into JV and varsity, and so it was causing all sorts of issues because some people had certain gifts, and everyone was like, okay, they're varsity you guys have these gifts, you guys are JV. And so it was causing envy, it was causing boasting, it was causing arrogance, and it just wasn't a good thing. And so Paul is going to write to him and he's like, guys, look, if if the church in Corinth is going to be a healthy church, if it's going to be God's church, then you're going to need the one key ingredient for your church to have the aroma of Christ and to be sweet to the taste of those who come and worship here. And that ingredient is the ingredient of love. And so as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning, I just, I just want to be clear with you. Watermark is nothing without love. It is nothing without love. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes and says this. I'm going to read you the whole chapter. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here we go. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So all eyes on me. Here's what, here's what I want to start by saying. What's interesting is the passage that we apply to marriage, the most intimate relationship that we know of. Paul is actually applying to relationships in the church. That just shows you how important our relationships with one another are are. Like the love that we talk about at wedding ceremonies should be applied in marriage is actually the kind of love that God wants us to apply with one another. So what I want to do, I want to push Watermark towards health. My hope is that Watermark would be a church that is marked by love. That's the type of church that I want to be a part of, and I hope that that's the type of church that you want to be a part of. We should desire to be a part of a church that is marked By love. And so, as I seek to encourage us to be as healthy as possible, I just want to identify four truths from this passage about love that will help us get there. Now, I need to warn you, as I was preparing, some friends dared me to try and make my points famous love songs. And so, here's the compromise I'm going to give you real points. And then I'm going to throw in a song title for those who would enjoy that more. And this might not go well. And if it doesn't, editing is an incredible thing. And before it hits the web, it will be edited out. So anyway, the first truth that I want you to see is this. Love is the defining mark of spiritual maturity. Okay? Love is the defining mark of spiritual maturity. So if you want a famous... Song, here it is, What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner. And Tina, the answer to your question is everything. Love has everything to do with spiritual maturity. Here's why I say that. Look back at the text. Remember, Paul is writing to people who are experiencing great dysfunction, especially around spiritual gifts. And so he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So what I need you to understand is that Paul is utilizing hyperbole here. He is painting the picture of people in verses 1 through 3 that don't actually exist. But what he is doing is he is taking the Corinthians' understanding of spiritual maturity and he is exaggerating it. So in the church in Corinth, the most prized spiritual gift was the gift of speaking in tongues. And so Paul says, okay, think with me, friends, hypothetically. Imagine I am able to speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So what does that look like? He's saying, imagine... I have the supernatural ability to speak a language that I have never studied, but I'm able to instantly speak it and share the gospel with someone from a different culture, and they understand the gospel in their language. So if there was someone from a different culture in this room, and I knew that, and I just instinctively slipped into a different language that I have never studied, you might see that and be like, oh my gosh, TA's got like some... Like direct line to heaven. Like he and Jesus are so synced up, that guy, he he's like the most spiritually mature guy I know because that guy just on a whim started talking Arabic, and like people came to Christ. It was crazy. Paul's saying, like, imagine that I'm able to speak in the tongues of men, but I'm also able to speak in the tongues of angels. And people want to debate what's Paul talking about when he talks about the tongues of angels? Remember, he's using hyperbole. So I think what Paul is saying is, imagine that I have the ability to speak a supernatural language that no one else understands. So whatever the language of angels are, I'm not able to just speak a language that I've never studied. I can understand the the highest form of supernatural language that exists. And so the people in Corinth would be listening and be like, oh, yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, that would be like the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. And what does he say? He's like, if you can do that, but you don't have love, you know what you are? You're like a gong or like clanging cymbals. It's like this. I, I brought these from got these from my mom's house. These have been around since I was a kid. Paul's like, you know what, if you can speak in tongues and you can understand angels, but you don't have love, it's just like this. And like when I go to my mom's house, my kids head straight for the music bin and when they find these, it's cute for like the first three seconds. But then five minutes in, it's like, you should maybe think about not doing that. And then 10 minutes in, it's like, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Like, that's the reality. It's annoying. It's not beneficial. And if you think about symbols, symbols are not like a solo instrument. Like, I don't know the last time that you heard someone do a symbol solo, but it's not a thing. Like, no one leads worship from the symbols. Like, how great is our God. Sing with me. How great. No, no one, no one does that. And Paul's point is like, hey, look, tongues by itself doesn't work. Like, it, it is meant to be accompanied and actually fueled by love. And then he goes on, look at what he says in verse two. Again, he's using hyperbole, he's painting pictures of people that don't actually exist. He's like trying to, to paint a picture of the most spiritual human being that the people in Corinth could, could conceive. And if I had prophetic powers, like the ability to hear a special word from God that I don't get from studying, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries, no one understands all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, like I I have such a gift of faith that I can look at a mountain and be like, go somewhere, And it just does. He's like, imagine that. But have not love. I I am a zero. I am nothing. Verse 3. If I give away all I have. It's the most extreme display of generosity. Like I have been around some wildly generous people in my life. But I've never been around someone this generous. That they have literally given away every cent and every belonging That they have. He says, if you do that, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, like I suffer for Jesus Christ, but have not love, I I gain nothing. Do Do you see what he's trying to show? He's trying to show like, hey... Guys, what you think is spiritual maturity is not spiritual maturity. You guys are elevating these gifts. You're like, oh, you speak in tongues. You are spiritually mature. Oh, you can do, you've got the gift of prophecy or the gift of knowledge. Oh, you guys must be somebody. He's like, no, you might think you're somebody, but if you don't have love, you're a nobody. You're a zero. Why? Because the defining mark of spiritual maturity is love. Love is the defining mark of spiritual maturity. And so it's just good for us to realize, like, don't miss what I'm telling you now. Spiritual maturity is not measured by what you do, but by why you do it. So just push pause on your life right now and ask the question why do you do the spiritual activity that you do? So if you have a quiet time every day, why do you do that? Why? If you serve on Sunday mornings here, why do you do that? If you're involved in a community group, why do you do that? What's the motivation? Pay attention to the motivations of obligation, self-satisfaction, or recognition. Some of us do things out of obligation. It's like, you know what? I have a quiet time because that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Like, I have a quiet time so that I don't feel like a spiritual loser. You know what? I serve. It's super inconvenient, but I do it because if I don't do it, like, that's a problem because you're supposed to serve if you're a member. So I do it because I'm supposed to do it. Do you think God is in heaven like, thank goodness, I know you hate doing it, but I'm just glad you do it. I don't care why you do it. You just better get in there and read your Bible. No. Like, what kind of twisted father would do that? Pay attention to self-satisfaction. It's like, you know what? I serve because it makes me feel better about myself. Like, I just feel better about me when I do that. I come to church, especially after a tough Friday or Saturday night, I come to church because I just feel better about myself. I read my Bible so that I don't, so I just I just feel better about myself. Or recognition. Like you know what I serve to be seen. It feels feels good to feel like people need me. So I I like kind of doing something that people are like, oh man, we need you here. Thank goodness you do what you do. Paul's point is like hey Spiritual maturity isn't measured by what you do, it is by, it's measured by why you do it. Love is the defining mark of spiritual maturity. Let me just give you an example from my own life of how things have gone wrong for me. A while back, I was invited to, to speak to a college ministry in Clemson, South Carolina, and I was coming from College Station, Texas. So, to get to Clemson, it was a whole day deal. And so, I, I had to drive to, to Dallas. I had to fly to Atlanta. I had to drive three hours to South Carolina. Like, it was a journey, and my heart was not in the right place the entire time. So as I'm going there, I'm like, man, these, these kids are so lucky that I'm going to all this effort To come and be with them. And tonight, they're going to get to hear from the director of Breakaway Ministries. So that's probably a pretty big deal for them. So, like, my motives are just in the complete wrong place. And so when I get there, everything just begins to unravel. Like, I am about to go up to speak. And as, like, moments before, they're, they're playing the worship song. And I'm sitting there in my chair holding an open cup of tea. And I need to adjust something on my microphone. So as I do that, I just begin to pour tea on my knee. Now, my jeans were super thick, so the tea didn't soak through and touch my skin until far too late. So by the time I look back, I just had this big wet spot on my pants, which usually is not like how you want to put your best foot forward. And so I get up onto the stage, and I'm super rattled. And I haven't really prepared my heart for this moment, so I just pull a talk that's kind of like a sugar stick for me. I'm like, oh, I've seen God use this talk before, so let's just kind of plug and play it. And so I kind of go through the talk and, and finish up, and when I sit down, not one person comes up and is like, that's exactly what I need to hear tonight. It was like, it was so clear that that night at least, man, I was just a clashing symbol to these students why because i tried to use my gift without love so i step into the summer and the lord begins to do a radical work in my life and on my heart and i step into the school year to lead the college ministry i was leading at college station and uh I stepped into the semester with a deeper conviction and love for the Word of God than I had ever experienced in my life. And I had a deeper urgency in my heart for college students to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so what happened is I started showing up on Tuesday nights with a love for teaching the Word of God, which was the gift that God had given me, and a love for students seeing Jesus. And it was interesting because students began to come up to me and say, something is different about this semester. And that's what happens when when your gift and love go in tandem. It builds up the body. People are edified and encouraged. When you divorce the two, it's a waste. Okay? So let's just be clear. Love is the defining mark of spiritual maturity, the second truth that we see in this passage is this, okay? Love is action, okay? Like if love is the defining mark of spiritual maturity, it just, it begs the question, what is love? What is love? And you would think that that's the song that I chose. It's not. But we need to understand what is love. So my hope is that every single one of us would leave out here, Echoing the words of Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. I know my wife is like super embarrassed that I just tried to imitate Forrest Gump. I did my best. Like it's it's (laughs) mediocre, but point across. Like my goal is that we all leave here understanding exactly what love is. And so to be clear, love is. Action. It is action. The reason that I say that is that in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, all of the characteristics of love that we see right here in 1 Corinthians 13, they are verbs, but they show up in our English Bibles as adjectives. And so knowing that they are verbs, love is action, what's the song choice? All you DC Talk or John Mayer people, love is a verb, right? Love is, love is, love is, love is a verb. Go back and listen to DT, DC Talk. Down with the DC Talk. If you're not familiar, then you're missing out. Anyway, I apologize for that. Let's We'll cut that out of the recording. So love is action. And the Greek word that Paul is using here for love is the Greek word agape, which is different from the Greek word eros, which is, which is sexual love, that's where we get erotic from, or philea love, which is where we get the word Philadelphia from, it's it's brotherly love. It's different from storge love, which is where we get the idea of familial love from. This is agape love, which is self-sacrificing, one-way love. It's not the result of emotions, it is a result of the will. It's a type of love that sees the needs of another person and seeks to meet those needs. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to I'm going to rifle through 15 characteristics of love that we see in this passage. There's 15. And I want to make sure you understand what each one means. So track with me, take notes if you want. But we want to understand exactly what love is and what it isn't we don't have the right to define what love is because god has been very clear what love should look like in the church first love is patient the greek word there it's the idea of having a really long fuse it's a type of self-restraint towards those who do us wrong even when it would be easy to retaliate it's it's the ability to put up with a great amount of irritation or criticism. So here's the deal. In this church, if you decide to step into leadership, whether it's lay leadership or in leadership that is employed by the church, whenever you step into leadership, you are basically consenting to being misunderstood. That's the way it goes. Leadership is the agreement to being misunderstood. People will have a problem with what you do. Criticism will come. <coughs> and in this church... Leaders are required to exhibit patience, the ability to take criticism, and to not retaliate, but to be long-fused. Paul says love is kind. Kindness is simply seeing someone's needs and taking action to meet their needs with no strings attached. There's no hidden agenda. You just want someone's life to be better. And then Paul turns and begins to talk about what love is not. There's seven negative characteristics that love doesn't possess, He says, love does not envy. Envy is simply desiring what someone else has. It's the result of comparison. That's what the people in Corinth were doing. They were looking at the people that had the gift of tongues, and they were like, man, I wish I had that. I just have this gift. See, what love does is love rejoices at the success of others. So if you see someone operating in their gifts and they're successful, their success doesn't mean that you're a failure. In the church, if someone wins, the whole church, the body of Christ, wins. We celebrate that. Love does not boast. Another way of saying it is love doesn't parade itself. Love doesn't have to have the spotlight. It doesn't serve to be seen or praised. Love is not arrogant, which means love doesn't have a big head. Love doesn't need everybody to be a nobody so that you can feel like somebody. Verse five, love is not rude. The the Greek literally means without form. Love isn't without form, meaning love isn't void of tact or respect for others. And so we just have to make sure that we never label rudeness as simply having a strong personality, okay? Okay. And it's good for some people to realize that maybe you've been successful in your work because you've been extremely aggressive or you've bulldozed people to get your way. And it's good for you to understand that what has made you successful at work might make you a failure in the church because love is not rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way, which means love isn't self-focused, it's others-focused. Love champions what's best for the body, not for self, which means that you don't walk into this place prioritizing your preferences. Actually, your preferences die at the door instead of you dying on the hill of your preferences. But often, churches will split on things like, well, you know what, the music's too loud. You know what, the music's too soft. You know what, The, the worship's... Too progressive. It's not progressive enough. You know what? I like that speaker better than that speaker. You know what? I think I could do a better job with what we're doing in children's ministry. All of that is just insisting on its own way. Those things have to die when you step into this place. Love is not irritable. That that word, it just means easily angered or overly sensitive. Love is controlled and restrained. Love is not... Resentful, that Greek word is a mathematical or an accounting term. It's another way of saying it is love doesn't record wrongs. So at least at Watermark Community Church, we seek to treat each offense like it's the first offense. Like we keep, we, we cancel out accounts of wrongs. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The idea of not rejoicing at wrongdoing is the idea that you don't celebrate when someone fails. Like if someone falls, you, you, you confess to God the moments where something in your spirit finds, um, finds some satisfaction when someone else fails because their failure just makes you feel better about your own sin in your life. Like we don't gossip about other people's failures. That's what it means to not rejoice at wrongdoing, but we rejoice with the truth, which means here at Watermark, we're gonna have courageous faith. Like we're gonna stand on truth. We're not gonna compromise truth just to bend to culture. It means that, but it also means that we are always going to celebrate when People, individuals in this church take truth and apply it to their lives and experience victory because of it. And so when you see friends walking in the truth and experiencing victory, you don't need to feel insecure if you're still struggling. You don't need to want them to fail so that they just kind of stay right where you are. No, we celebrate when victory is experienced. Love bears all things. It can mean two different things. Some people believe it means to cover over, that love covers over all things. So it's the idea of protecting someone's reputation. If someone sins, we don't go around gossiping about it. To protect the reputation of the the person, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, love stands in the presence of a fault with a finger on her lip. Other people believe that When it says love bears all things, it means to put up with. So you endure people's sin. It doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to it or you ignore it. It just means that you don't run from people when they are difficult to deal with. Love believes all things, which means that we believe the best about each other until facts tell us otherwise. Love hopes all things, which means that we're optimistic about the future. We hope for the best in each other. We actually expect God's grace to win like we expect through ministries like regeneration we expect for people to walk into regions saying there's no way i'm a slave to the sin there's no way out and for them to walk out of it saying god's grace has been sufficient for me and i'm i'm beginning to experience healing and victory we we hope all things And love endures all things. That word endures, it's a military term meaning to hold a position in a war in the face of overwhelming odds. And so we are willing to stay in the fight with each other even when times get tough in the church because love endures all things. Do you see it? Love is action. Love is action. It is not primarily a feeling which is is really comforting. For me, that love between one another and the church, is not it is not first and foremost a feeling. I find that encouraging because when I look through this list, there are several things that don't feel natural for me in the list. Like look back at it. When you look at that list, is anyone here looking at the list like, man, I am crushing this list. Like you're looking at it like check, 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 check. All 15, you're just like, got it. If that's you, would you slip up here? would you actually come on stage? Would you just stand here? We'll just look at you for the next 20 minutes and be like, all right, guess that's it. That's what we're aiming for. <laughs> but if you're not that, if you look at the list, anyone here just wanted to be honest, look at the list and you're like, yeah, there's maybe a few things that I could work on. Anyone? Just me? Really? Real? Okay, yes. Okay, thank you. yeah. We all have room to grow. We all have room to grow, and that is okay. The question is, what's the path forward? Because this is where things can get really dangerous. Because we've just established that love is the defining mark of spiritual maturity, and we've said that love is action. If we're not careful, this talk will just turn towards behavior modification. It's like, okay guys, here's the game plan. We're all gonna go read Atomic Habits. And we're all going to agree. We're going to start loving for two minutes a day and just watch. That two minutes is going to turn to three minutes, four minutes, and eventually you just have a habit of love. That's not how it works. You don't just like say three, two, one, love. That's not how it works. Shane talked about that in worship a couple weeks ago. So, how does it work? Okay, well, the third truth that I want you to see is this. Now, this, this point is like a sentence, so get ready to write. But this is the theological foundation for walking in love here at Watermark, okay? Love is a response to and a reflection of Jesus' love by the power of the Spirit, Okay? Love is a response to and a reflection of Jesus' love by the power of the Spirit. If you want a song title, here it is. It's by the band Foreigner. It's I Want to Know What Love Is. You remember that song? I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Okay? So that's what we're talking about here. We want to know what love is, and we want someone else to show us what love is. So love is a response to and a reflection of Jesus' love by the power of the Spirit. Okay, 1 John 4 8 tells us that God is love. The reason that that is important is because what that means is that 1 Corinthians 13 is not first and foremost a description of how we are to love one another. It is first and foremost a description of how we have been loved by God. So when we look at First Corinthians 13, we can't just automatically snap into, okay, here's what we need to do with each other. We first have to pause and recognize this tells us about what God has done for us. This tells us about God's love for us. So let me just give you a few examples. Jesus wasn't as patient. Jesus stood silently while he was being accused. Jesus Christ was hung on a cross for your sins and mine, and people hurled insults at him, and they begged him to come down off the cross to prove that he was the son of God, but he didn't. He patiently endured the cross until he was able to declare, it is finished. Because if he had come down off the cross, every single one of us would have been left in our sins and headed for the wrath of God. Even now, God is patient. Second Peter Three nine says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you need to know that you are sitting in the midst of God's patience towards you, because he is allowing you to live on the earth that he made, and he's allowing you to live with with apathy in your heart towards him, indifference in a rejection toward him. But he, he loves you and he's patient with you because he desires for you to come into relationship with him. Jesus is also kind. He looked at us in our helplessness. Jesus saw that there was nothing that we imperfect people could do to be reconciled to a perfect God. There is nothing that we as imperfect people can do to be made right with a perfect God. So knowing that, Jesus Christ, who wasn't as perfect in his kindness, left heaven and came to earth to deal with all of our imperfections on the cross. He rose from the dead, defeating our imperfections. And through faith in Jesus, his perfection is given to us so that when a perfect God looks at us imperfect people, what does he see? the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's his kindness. Jesus didn't insist on his own way. The night before he was crucified, what do we see him doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He is sweating blood and praying, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus isn't resentful. That word in the Greek, remember, it's, it's an accounting term. Jesus does not keep a record of our wrongs. Romans 4.8 says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is the good news of Christianity, that Jesus has done something. He has made a way for you and me to experience complete forgiveness of sins, that we can be made right with God and we can live for all of eternity at peace with God. Okay, so... The point that we're talking about is this. Love is a response to and a reflection of Jesus' love by the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 unpacks God's love towards us. Now, look at 1 John verse 3, chapter 3, verse 16. This is key. It says, by this we know love. How do we know love? That Jesus laid his life down for us. So if we want to know what love is... We look at Jesus Christ laying his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So love is first a response to Jesus' love. Do you see that? We, We love one another. We lay down our lives for each other as a response to Jesus laying his life down for us. We express the love that we have experienced from Jesus Christ. It is a response to his love. But it's not just a response. It is a reflection of his love. So we do what Jesus did. Jesus laid his life down for us. We lay our lives down for one another. That is what love is. It is a response to, that's the motivation. We step into church and we love one another because we are responding to his love and we seek to reflect his love. I'll just bring it into an earthly example. I have two amazing parents. My mom and my dad are gifts from God, The two of the most generous and sacrificial people that I know. And I'll speak specifically about my father because I am a father Uh, My dad was one of 10 kids and grew up in a two-bedroom home, and I think because of that, he's just learned to hold everything so loose in his life, and so growing up and even now, my, my dad is just a giver. So the joke in our family is if you want something that my dad has, all you have to do is compliment it. So it's like, Dad, I like that shirt. And he'll be like, oh, really? Well, let's try it on. Like he'll like take it off and be like, put it on. Let's see what it looks like. Dad, I like those shoes. Oh, really? Oh, try these on. Because he just wants to give. And my dad is the type that when I will have speaking engagements out of town. Like even when he lives in Dallas and I lived in College Station, if I was speaking in Houston, my dad would drive from Dallas to College Station to pick me up, to drive me to Houston just to be with me and to cheer me on. I have experienced his love in an incredible way. And now as a father, I want to express that same love to my kids And so it's interesting because especially over the last month, there's just been different times where my kids will thank me for doing something or apologize that I'm having to do something, whether it's give them something or take them somewhere or clean something up or whatever. And you know what I've found myself doing in those moments? I've found myself saying this. Hey, guys, I'm happy to do it because this is what fathers do. And I tell you that just to say, Because I experienced that love, I want to express that love. I'm responding to my father's love, and I'm seeking to reflect it to my own kids. The same should be true in the church with our love from Jesus Christ toward one another. Love is a response to and a reflection of Jesus' love. Now, here's the key. By the power of the Spirit. The reason that I said that is that Romans 5 says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know what that means? It means that God has given us everything we need to put 1 Corinthians 13 love into action here with one another. The fourth truth that I want you to see from this text is simply this. There is nothing greater than love. There's nothing greater than love. Here's the song, All You Need Is Love by the Beatles, okay? There's nothing greater than love. And I don't have time to unpack verses 18 through 13 for you, verse by verse. But the the point is simple, okay? Paul is addressing the fact that the people in Corinth are elevating spiritual gifts and prioritizing that over love. And Paul's just making the point, guys... Spiritual gifts are set to expire. They are on the clock. You're not going to take your gifts with you to heaven because we're not going to need them in heaven. But love is something that lasts for all of eternity. That's his point. So just watch it, and I'll explain it just very quickly. He says this, love never ends. That's the 15th characteristic of love. It never ends. It's permanent. It's eternal. Love never ends. As for, prophes- As for prophecies, They'll pass away. They're temporary. They're on the clock. As for tongues, they're on the clock. They will cease. As for knowledge, set to expire, it will pass away. He says this, verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. All he's saying is that spiritual gifts exist for us to build each other up and know God more. But when Jesus comes back, we will have mature and complete understanding of Jesus Christ. So spiritual gifts will just be redundant. They will be completely unnecessary. They're going to pass away. And now in verses 11 and 12, he just gives illustrations of the fact that spiritual gifts are going to pass away. He says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So Paul is equating our life now to being a child. And when Jesus comes back, that's being an adult. And he's just saying right now, even with spiritual gifts, we're like a child. Like our our knowledge is limited. Our speech is limited. We have limited understanding. But when we become an adult, things change. There's different capacity. It's kind of like this. When my family was at lunch yesterday, We were just asking random questions and my wife asked our family the question, hey, if you could be transported anywhere instantly in the world for 24 hours, where would you want to go? My answer as an adult was Bora Bora. My four-year-old's answer was Galveston. (laughs) Very different. Limited understanding, full understanding. Paul's point is, look, when Jesus comes back, we will have full understanding the gifts won't even be necessary anymore. So verse 13, or then he says in verse 12, for now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. He's saying if you want to know what you should value most, it's three things, faith, faith, True understanding, true trust in Jesus Christ, faith, hope, and love. Why? Because those are the three things that last for all of eternity. Faith lasts for all of eternity. Even though we will see Jesus face to face, the faith that begun now, Jesus Christ is Lord, that will be our anthem for all of eternity. Jesus Christ is Lord. The hope we have now is that that good things are coming in the future. We will have that hope with great certainty in heaven, we will spend all of eternity saying, good things are coming, good things are coming. And we have love. He says the greatest of these is love. Why? Because love is the only thing that reflects Jesus Christ. See, Jesus doesn't have faith. He's the object of our faith. Jesus doesn't have hope. He's the object of our hope. But Jesus, God, is love for us to love is to show that we truly belong to him and so i tell you that just to say there is nothing greater than love nothing greater than love we have been transformed by christ to love like christ here at watermark community church we believe that we've been transformed by christ To love like Christ. We want to be people who believe the gospel and live it out with one another. So let me just close up today just by reminding you we are nothing here at Watermark without love. I want to be a part of a church that's marked by love, and I hope you do as well. I want to be a church that is marked by people who individually, all throughout the week, we are sitting with Jesus and reminding ourselves of the beautiful reality that Jesus Christ came and in His love, He died for us and then He conquered the grave. When we remind ourselves of that all throughout the week, imagine what happens when we all come together and to collectively celebrate that with one another. I want to be a part of a church that's marked by patience where we will sin against each other, we will wrong one another, but yet we're not resentful. We don't keep records of wrong. We fight for relationships here. We pursue reconciliation. We, we marvel at the gospel's ability to restore relationships. I want to be marked, I want to be a part of a church that's marked by the kindness of God, that we actively see each other's needs and seek to meet them, that that no one has to struggle alone. No one has to suffer or battle or grieve alone. I want to be a part of a church that wars against envy, that we don't have to compete with one another. We can celebrate one another. We can identify each other's gifting and encourage each other to steward it well. I want to be a part of a church that wars against boasting and, and arrogance, that we walk humbly with one another, that we don't insist on our own way. We don't come here to die on the hill of our preferences, but we put our preferences to death. At the door. I want to be a part of a church that believes all things, that we assume the best about one another. And I want to be a part of a church that hopes for all things, that we believe that God's grace will triumph, that this is a church that's consistently watching one another apply truth to life and walk in victory. I want to be a part of a church that's marked by love. But here's the thing I cannot expect watermark to be marked by love if I myself am not marked by love and neither can you you cannot expect watermark to be marked by love if you yourself are not being marked by love so I just want to invite you now to take a moment let's just pray let's pray together and I just want to ask you now in this moment take a moment And would you just allow yourself to be reminded of the beautiful reality of the the gospel? Would you allow yourself to be loved by God in this moment? Would you thank him for the cross? Would you thank him for his resurrection? Would you thank him for his love for you? And then I want to ask you to pick one of the characteristics of love that you struggle with from this passage. And I just want to invite you to ask God to empower you with his spirit to love like he does. And then would you pray for our church? Would you pray that Watermark would be known in Dallas for its love for one another and for this city? Pray that we would be a church marked by love. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and this is the first time you've ever heard about His love, or maybe you came into this place believing that Jesus could never love you. Would you realize that his love is toward you this morning? He gave his life on the cross to communicate his love for you. Would you respond in faith this morning, inviting him in to save you from your sins and to be the Lord of your life? Lord Jesus, we need you. We thank you for your deep love for us. God, I pray that Watermark Community Church would be a church that is known for the way that we love one another and love this city. I pray that our love for each other would be a response to your love and a reflection of it as well. We need you, Lord Jesus. Amen.